for the longest time since I can remember, I've always had to check myself. So for a white woman to tell me that I had to check my body language, like, fuck you, man, that shit fucking hurt. It really did. From Soho Media Club, this is Naked Stories, a series taking you into the inner world of the media industry, where prejudice and glass ceilings are laid bare. Stories that are hard to tell out in the open, but have the power to change the future. Produced by PRL Studio, I'm Roses Okipo. Welcome to episode 10, Pandora's Box. Today we have something different to end the Naked Stories series. We have a special guest who, like our other interviewees who shared their experiences, was scared, shitless. But also like them, she realised that enough is enough, that in order to see a change, you must be the change. Today, I will be your guest. And Jessica, one of the co-founders of Soho Media Club, will be guiding you through my story. Take it away, Jay. Thanks, Roses. So listen up, peeps. It's time to meet this week's guest, Roses Akipo. That voice you're used to hearing, like chocolate caramel oozing down your throat. You've probably seen her pictures on social too. And let's keep it real. You'd find it hard to disagree. She's got a beaming smile with sparkling teeth to die for. She's loud on the outside and shy on the inside. Roses wears her heart on her sleeve and has a swag in her style. This is the story of Roses. Let's start with her roots. I was born two weeks late in a country that some people may uh, recognise it or call it Niger. Other people will um, know it as the originators of jollof rice. Ghanaians don't come at me. okay? And other people will call it or known it's called by its name, Nigeria. I was born in Nigeria. I grew up there for two years of my life. Then I came to the UK, born in Nigeria, bred in the UK. Raised by a loving mother and surrounded by siblings, her Nigerian household boomed with African culture. My mum is the most Nigerian woman you will find in the UK. I love my mum to bit. She is like, she will, has worked her ass off to keep us alive, fed and well. I eat everything. I eat eba, I eat obolo soup, I eat egusi, I eat, you know, pounded yam. I eat all the foods. I hear my language. My mum speaks like so many different dialects. I hear it constantly. It is who I am. Rose's school was diverse, but nevertheless, she got made to feel othered. So I grew up in a mixed, you know, state school, all kinds of um, ethnicities. I was never, I wouldn't say I was bullied. Like, you know, there was normal picking on each other, but that came and went. I grew up knowing, though, that it wasn't cool to be African. So from primary school, my features, I have big lips, I have nice big nose, you know. I have these nice African features, but they were not celebrated. I was picked on for that, you know. I used to be called names and I hated the way I looked for the longest time. She recalls an early memory of being at school and being made to feel different by pint-sized chatterboxes making inappropriate comments, which left Rose's feeling confused. 
I must have been in like year one. So I wasn't even that old. And I remember like the kids were laughing at me and I don't understand. I never understood this memory. And the kids were laughing at me and I remember just you know having my head my head on my hands and thinking Ooh, and I was like talking to myself in my head I have to stand up to this and I was so young it's such a like crazy thing and I just put my head up and said stop laughing at me and that just made them laugh even more and it was just like you know the little kids grouped up we were in our little groups table and then I remember like when I was thinking about this when I was older it was because I had an accent that's what they were laughing at obviously the things that I was saying was coming out in a completely different strange way to them so that's what they were laughing at and I didn't understand because as far as I knew I was part of them so it was just like random memories like that I just I couldn't put my finger on what was going on or what happened The media world can be mistaken for the real world unless audiences have sufficient personal experience to counteract its effects. And this is what happened in the 1990s. You know, I grew up in the 90s, yes. Best era to grow up in. (laughs) And, uh, you know, they had Band-Aids and everything that the media showed of uh, Africa was these malnourished kids with swollen stomachs. Africa was not, is riddled with disease. It was not somewhere that you should be proud of uh, growing up or being from. You know who you are, you know where you're from. But when it's attacked, you just like step back and you're like, "Mm, okay. I just realised it was not somewhere that people had respect for. On the flip side, media can also have a positive influence. Along came Afrobeats, which reinstilled a sense of pride and togetherness in a generation of young black Britons who had been historically shunned by society. But yeah, until I went to uni then, it was, that's when it was like, bam, this is your people, your people are out here. You know, Afrobeat started and, you know, when you go out, you're hearing your music and that is what stitched everything together. It was the music that created this bond and, you know, gave us the ratings as Africans. Like, Beyonce's out here doing music with Chateau Wale and it's like, if Beyonce can't validate someone, who the fuck can? Come on. Even Ed Sheeran's out there with Fuse OGs making these tunes. So people of all ethnicities, of all backgrounds, all over the world are hearing Afrobeat. And that's making them more aware that we're out here, you know. But it's been like five years now. But when Afrobeat started, that's when I was at uni. And that's when I learned to dance, guys. Because I thought I was dancing until I until I listened to Afrobeats. And my body was just moving in different kind of ways. I was like, yo. So I love Afrobeats. It literally did, like, ignited the fire in me that... And I was just, like, meeting people that were so confident in their ethnicity. I was like, wow, like, I've not seen this before. Like, and it, it was it was so nice, like, to see people expressing themselves, you know. Roses talks about the feeling of euphoria and freedom whilst hearing the sounds of the beats in a club. It's so wild because, like, you're standing in a club and, you know, you're so used to this, to the way, the club life. You know, you're going to hear R&B, you're going to hear hip-hop, you're going to hear... You hear Bashman, you know, Bashman has been around for ages, Jamaican music. But then when you hear Afrobeats and, you know, you're hearing it and your body is responding to it. But then you look around and you see everyone, like, of all these different ethnicities. You see white people, Asian people, black people, you know, Hispanic. You just see everyone dancing to it and it just feels like the best 
whatever carnival you could go to, you just feel so free. You feel like, you know, I'm standing there and the music is vibrating in my bones and I'm just like feeling it and my body's moving and responding to it. And my mind is free and I'm just hearing my language, the language that I've heard in my house outside. It's like, you know, it's just amazing, man. It literally is. It's just one of the best feelings. And no, and especially like when I relate it back to growing up, people laughing at people, you know, Africans, people like me. Um, now you're here celebrating Africans. I'm like, yeah, man, this is how it should be. We all should be celebrating each other's cultures, enjoying the best parts of it. So today, is she proud to be Nigerian? I am 100%. 1,000% a proud Nigerian, yeah, 100%. Age 16, you deal with spotty skin, fallouts with girlfriends, fallouts with boyfriends and fad diets. For Roses, she had to battle with something a lot more serious. I've grown up with sickle cell anemia and I've grown up with, um, had chronic fatigue from when I was about 16. My mum realised that I had this kind of pattern of coming back from school and completely passing out like I would sleep for ages. She was like, she described me as the Energizer Bunny. Like, I would literally be up and down, up and down, and then out. So, yeah, she clocked this pattern and she took me to the doctor. She's like, I don't know what's wrong with her. Like, this is not, this is not normal. This isn't the type of tiredness which can be fixed with a disco nap. Roses describes the intensity of that feeling. Literally, it's like being drugged. You cannot, for everything in the world, keep your eyes open. You have to, literally, it's like you're, you're drugged. Your eyes are closing, you're falling asleep. And then, you know, with the whole thing of that, the noise around you. But it wasn't just like the tiredness, it comes with pain. It comes with, there's so many different elements of it. You have muscle and joint pain. Like every day is different. I wake up and I might, like my knee might hurt or my shoulder might hurt or I can't walk properly today. And that's what I was like going through. And this was like the consultant coming and talking to us, my mum and I, about what the conclusion was. It was like, so she's got chronic fatigue. And it was like, oh, okay. And that was kind of it. There was no kind of, we're going to send you here. You're going to have to do this or be careful about that. Given a diagnosis and that was it. Talking about these times triggers those emotions. The only time I cry is when I talk about my disability, only because only because I was made to feel crazy for the longest time by the doctors. And, you know, people, I don't expect normal people to understand, but when you're constantly in and out of hospital and you're getting all these tests done and they're like, you know, oh, nothing, nothing wrong with you. Like, we're not seeing anything. And then having the doctors tell you that these pains that you're feeling are common in old people. And then, you know, being stuck in bed for so much of my teenage life. Not only was Roses experiencing chronic fatigue at the age of sweet 16, but this time also coincided puberty and her period starting. Note to the men listening, this is about to get graphic. That created a whole nother level of bullshit. My body was fighting all these things that created extreme fatigue. So with my periods, 
they were super heavy. It's called menorrhagia. So it's like an abnormal blood loss during your periods and it would last longer than a week. So I was having like up to two weeks periods. And, you know, with the chronic fatigue, I was just extremely tired. I lose so much blood to the point that I faint. So I will get up and I will faint. I'll find myself on the floor. So for the first three days of my period, like I don't work. Like that's always been the case. But in the in the case where I've had a contract that I've had to work as a full-time person, like a long-term contract, I've had to just get up and go to work. And I timed it. It takes, on the worst days it will take, and this is most, most periods, so it takes 10 minutes to fill up a night sanitary towel. So imagine I have a 45 minute journey to work. So I have to get up from the train, find a toilet and use a public toilet and carry on my journey. And that's with me feeling dizzy, exhausted, because I probably not slept that night. I've been up and down, you know, doing what I needed to do. And then I come into work and I'm late. And it's like, I have to, if I'm in a place long enough, which usually I am, I have to be able to explain this to, to management. And they're not always women. And it's like, how am I going to tell this man that I'm suffering like this? Because is he going to get it? Headaches, pains. With And it's, it's weird because when I was going through this, I didn't know I had chronic fatigue. I was just like, I always accounted everything to my sickle cell anemia because it's, that's what had created pains before and that's what created the tiredness before. So I just thought, oh, this is getting worse. Like, what's going on? So like, you know, I'll get more pains, I'll get more tired just lethargic, can't really get up in the mornings, always late, I was always late for school. Oh my God, it was the worst. But then like, luckily the school were really like cool in the sense of they would give me like a 15 minutes to get from home. Like, you know, when school starts at nine, they gave me an extra 15 minutes because I had to walk to school every day. So I would be extremely tired. If I was to hang out with Roses, would I be able to detect any changes in her? With the sickle cell anemia, I have really low iron levels and that's also attributes from my period losing so much blood. So if you live with me or you're around me enough, you will see the decline. And even at work, you will see the decline. So when my iron levels are normal, you know, I'm just tired. Like, you know, you're now and then you'll hear me say, I'm tired, tired. But as my iron levels drop, then you will see the whole falling asleep, the pains get worse. You will see that there's something wrong. Imagine waking up to pain every single day. Roses tells me what the intensity of the pain is like for her. I have like base level pain of four out of 10. So I'm always in pain every day. Like somewhere in my body hurts, if not everywhere hurts. And I'm not complaining, I'm just saying like, this is what I have to go through. I live my life, it's normal to me. So when I tell people about my, my, my condition, they're like, oh my God, I'm like, but it's normal. It's not something, it's when people start making it into like, you know, saying like it's an excuse or something. You're like, mate, it's not an excuse. This is something that I can't get over. Like if I'm stuck in bed, then there's nothing I can do. And I always have this rule, if I can get out of bed, then I'm going to be there. Relate or not, I'll be there. But if I can't get out of bed, then that then that's what it is. I can't get out of bed. I was curious, as a teenager, what were the dreams of this hashtag bougie Nigerian? I always wanted to be a TV um, children's presenter. That was my dream. I used to see like Angelica Bell on TV and I swear to God, like I was like, I can do this. She was the only black TV presenter. We had like Juden Sarpog and then further down the line, we had like Reggie Yates. And then when I saw like, you know, Angelica, I'm like, wow, so it is attainable. It's something that I can do. But I just couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out how I get from where I was at 
you know, in college or in high school, secondary school, and how I could make that happen. The Sylvia Young Theatre School has produced stars such as Rita Ora and Amy Winehouse. But for Roses, attending this type of school was just a pipe dream. I knew, like, Sylvia Young's. That's why I always said I want to go to Sylvia Young's because I knew it was a performing arts school and they knew they trained people, blah, blah, blah. But then there was no way my mum could afford that. Just kind of accepted my fate of I'm going to go to every public school, try and get into a really good uni, and then I'll figure it out from then. I remember they had a show on BBC and it was about children who went to Sylvia Young and I swear to God, I was like... It was one of the hardest things to watch because you're seeing, like, people live the life that you want to live. And you're just like, oh my God, like, I'd be so sick if I was given that opportunity to just, you know, I used to wish that someone would like spot me or something like, you know, or some, I would meet someone that would be able to open those doors for me. But it was never the case. Like, yeah, I used to watch this show and like see these kids, like, so young, they have international students. And I'm like, everyone is going to this school and just like living their best life and getting this experience and they're gonna have this chance like opportunity to to do the things that I wanted to do. Although Roses didn't follow the footsteps of her role model Angelica she did end up working behind the camera and of course the plan started with the big man upstairs. In my church, we have different departments and I'm in the media department. And that meant that I was filming my pastor, like walking up and down and doing the sermons. And I was actively using uh, camera equipment around the um, broadcasting of church sermons. And then it was time for me to pick my uni. And I remember reading something from Richard Branson said, and he said, you know, if you find something that you really enjoy doing and you create that, make that into work, then it will never feel like work. You always feel like you're doing, you know, you're just having fun doing your hobby or whatever. And that stuck with me. And I was like, okay, what do I like doing? With a little intervention from her auntie, her fate was sealed. I was talking to my aunt and she was like, well, what do you want to do? Like, what can you do? What do you enjoy doing? I was like, well, I enjoy doing the media stuff at work. She's like, yeah, why don't you do that then? She literally sat down with me and went through all the unis. Because, you know, she she understood, like, she's from Nigeria too, but she's more westernised than my mum in that sense of understanding the education system. And she sat down with me and we looked through all the unis and, she, you know, she knew I'm more practical than I am academic. So she was like, okay, you want it to be more practical stuff. So we had a list then of these unis that I'm going to go to. So Northampton University it was. However, it was at uni when I had one of the worst spells in terms of my health. Um, it affected me so much at uni that I had to go part time and I ended up doing a five. My course ended up being five years instead of three years. And it was just horrible because I didn't enjoy being in Northampton. I didn't enjoy, it was just so long. Like, you know, unfortunately, I just had, the course just had really bad teachers. It felt like they didn't want to be there, which made you think, like, why, why are we here, like, trying to earn this degree? And I just had, like, really bad experiences of just trying to make people understand, like, I, I'm struggling with something, but I'm trying to be present, I'm trying to be here, I'm trying to get this done, I don't want to have to take five years to do this course, OK. And then having an extension or requesting extensions because I haven't been able to do the work because I was sick or whatever, it's like an excuse for them. Oh, well, you know, you've had more than enough time to do this work and blah, blah. It doesn't just affect you physically, it's mentally as well. You get 
tired. You can't think. You're reading something or watching something and it's like you're not even watching it you're not even reading it. you have to read things over and over again before it gets into your head like it's so hard to describe what it is for me and I know everybody has different experiences but it's very similar you're constantly in pain good friends show their love in times of trouble and roses felt that love from close friend Karen I told a close friend of mine, um, Karen, bless you, Karen, because she then, when I told her, she would bring me food and look after me and Karen would check up on me. So, yeah, Karen was the one that, you know, she just was there. She literally was there. When you are going through tough times, teachers can be a great support, a friendly face to confide in and to help you navigate a path which works for you. Truly bad teachers are unusual, but they do exist. So I had this really shit photography teacher. I had a meeting with him. I can't remember what the meeting was about, but we were in like this small, it was the studio space. So we were standing in the gallery, which was really small. The studio space was all lit up. And I was in this room with the photography teacher and a guy from, he was like the technician, like the engineer. The guy was there only by chance. So it's a dark space, we're standing there and the engineer is kind of like doing whatever he's doing. So this guy, this photography teacher is talking to me, well, talking at me. And I'm just kind of standing there like, okay, cool. Like, I know what's coming. You're not going to give me an extension, whatever. Just say it, let's go. Then he just goes into one like, oh, well. And I was trying to explain to him, you know, this is why I need this extension. Please give me the extension. And then he goes, yeah, well, if you're that sick, then you're never going to be able to do anything. You'll never be able to work. You'll never, you know, you shouldn't even be here if you're that sick. And I was just like, wow. Trying to shit on her dreams, this teacher was having a huge negative impact on Rose's and her self-esteem. I don't know, it was just one of those weird moments that you're just like... And I always remember that because I'm like, I already had these thoughts in my head, like, you know, with everything going on and seeing the progression. So to hear someone say those kind of dark thoughts I had in my head, it was like, shit, man, like... How did Roses react? You see these kind of things on TV, you know, you see it in TV shows, TV dramas, because that's how they speak, because they want it to be effective. But to hear someone in real life say that shit to you, I was like, the fuck? What? Like, I didn't even say anything to him because I was so shocked that he felt that it was okay to speak to me like that. And then I was even shocked because the engineer was sitting there and didn't say nothing. And I was like, damn, like, so it made it seem like that's how he felt too. So I was just kind of like standing there. I was like, cool, bye. Like, I'm not gonna stand here and take your bullshit. And I just started to cry because I was like, what the fuck, like? But you know what? Up yours, Mr. Ignorant Prick. He was trying to make me feel like shit. Thanks for that because (laughs) <laughs> motherfucker, I am doing well, okay? In terms of career, I'm not where I want to be, but I've done amazing things out of my everyone in my course. I'm one of the few that I've worked in most major global media companies in this country. And as for the silent engineer in the room, well, it was only after the event that he acknowledged that it is categorically wrong to be spoken to in this manner. So anyways, we walk out of this room and the engineer walks out with me and he stops me and he goes, Roses, what he said, I don't agree with. He shouldn't have said that to you. Roses wasn't about to allow that idiot's comments to have power over her every day. But it did make her think when she was applying for jobs. I did have that thought 
not in my own ability to work hard because I know what I can do but I knew that my conditions would get in the way and that is something that really did put fear in me because for the longest time um, I didn't tell employers like I'll put it on the form when you have to write do you have a disability I'll be like yes I have this because I had to let them know because of the things that could potentially happen I could faint I could you know be really really ill but that was it I never had that communication with like my employer to say oh by the way you know just so you know I never had to do that but then when I started to see a specialist for my chronic fatigue she encouraged me to do that and she was giving me like all the positives like yes yes just do that so when I got my fight like my big break in the industry because I was working you know odd jobs doing like um, a lot of unpaid work and um I got my final break at NBC Universal and I could not believe my luck because wow you know it's one of those companies that you know and you've seen films from Universal and you're like oh my god I made it I made it <laughs> it was like you know I was dancing at home when they told me I got the job Woo! I was in my, in my dressing gown like doing the, the crip walk like <laughs> I ran to my mom she was like mom I got the job and she's like thank god French Jesus and I was like yeah thank you Jesus like it was man I could never imagine okay wait pause rewind play she got a job at Universal. So what? I am whooping for her. Okay, so let's get back to this. After weeks of being out of work, this news was big. And when it happened, it all happened very quickly. She's like, okay, well, if you could come for an interview um, on Tuesday, how does that sound? I was like, yes, any day. <laughs> and then it ended up being an interview the next day. They changed it. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, I had to, like, you know, get myself prepared and whatnot. The interview was conducted by her manager-to-be, and it was an unexpectedly pleasant experience. He was so nice and so warm and so welcoming, so down-to-earth, and I was like, oh, this guy likes me. And it's like, it's very unnatural for, you know, to feel like that after an interview, because usually you're kind of, there's a kind of barrier, and it is because of your race, because they don't understand, like, they're looking at you and they're kind of like, oh, she's not like the black person I thought she would be because I'm articulate and I'm welcoming, I'm warm. Like, I'm I'm comfortable to be around. You know, they see me and they're like, oh, she's lovely, like, blah, 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 blah. Like, you get that kind of, they warm up to you. But he was just straight away kind of like, ah, yeah, cool, whatever. And we were having a good chat. There's a butt coming. I can feel it. So I started working at NBC Universal and it is still an amazing company, not trashing the company, but my manager was something extraordinary and not in a good way. But he had his own issues and, you know, unfortunately he made them my issues um, in terms of the way he was treating me. But I think he had a problem with women and I think this because of the stories that I heard of how he treated women, the interns that were under him. I think he had like an alcohol problem which I was told about later on after the fact by people that knew him. He just done the weirdest, weirdest things. Like he would like follow me around the office. Like I'd meet up with colleagues for lunch and stuff or just have a quick quick chat. You know, you're like, you're working and you're like, oh yeah, let, I need to tell you something. And he would follow me and I'll be like, I clocked it. And I was like, what the hell? And I used to tell, I have people who can vouch for me. I'll be like, guys, I can't come and like meet you for five minutes to have like a little tea break because my manager will be following me. And they're like, what? I'm like, okay, watch. So I'll meet up these, like some of my, my people's just to have like, make a tea. And I'll, they were like, Roses, your manager's like behind the fridge. <laughs> I was like, really? Like, yeah. And he'd be standing there kind of trying to act normal, but he's like really tall and it's like, you can't not see him. 
This is uncomfortable, but let's dig a bit deeper. He was never doing it in a sexualized way. It was never like, you know, he fancied me, so he was stalking me kind of way. It was a kind of control thing. I think he had this kind of, he, I, he had a Jacqueline and Hyde type of personality. So when we were having our one-to-ones, he would be kind of like condescending and say like really snide things about not my work, just random shit. Cause he would like say stuff about my work, but then they always broadcasted my promos that I made. So I was like, okay, my work can't be that shit if you're sending it off to the Emia channels. Like, But then he would, um, when we were in public, he would do that kind of jokey condescending thing, you know, making those, It's like it sounds like a joke, but you're actually putting me down. So it was hard to pinpoint and it was hard to explain to people. I find it hard now trying to explain it to you because if I was to tell you what exactly he said, you would couldn't find anything wrong with the words. It was the tone, it was the body language, it was that kind of, yeah, you just knew, like, this man is not okay. But what really threw me off was that it was a point that him and I had to have, like, meetings every Friday and a HR person was present and they put this new woman in with our meetings. I believe that he did manipulate her and he was talking to her about, you know, saying one thing about me, but then he would come in and act like he didn't say these things because I think this, because he would say the most crazy shit in front of her. And I'll kind of look at her thinking, again, are you going to say anything? And she wouldn't say nothing. So I kind of believe that that's what it was. I was like, you know, I knew it wasn't me because not because I always think things about me in sense of like, I always blame myself, but I was like, I'm not doing anything. I was like, literally, I'm doing the best I can. He was never really present um, for him to be my mentor. So he was always away or sick or I realise now that he was away because he was he was struggling with this alcoholism. So whatever, he, he was never really there. So I did complain to HR. I was like, look, I'm here on a six months plus contract and I want to get the most out of this. And um, But I can't do this if I'm not given work to do. Like I was sitting on the same kind of task for like two weeks and I was just really conscious, you know, and I I was older than the most interns because I went to uni late. So I was a mature intern and, you know, I, was, I already had my shit together. I'm not saying that young people didn't, but, you know, I, I had my goals and I wanted to reach them at a certain time. But I don't know if that triggered him to be that way, but I heard that he was mean to all female interns. So that's why I'm like, it's hard to see if it was me as a black woman or if it was just me as a woman. Roses did share the details of her disability with her employer, but to them, it was just a process. I remember one time he was like, about my condition, he was like, well, I have my problems too. You don't see me singing and dancing about it. I was like, I told you one time, I gave you a letter from my specialist and you just fobbed me off like, oh, give it to HR. I was like, okay, cool, like, and then HR created a massive thing. They were like, you can't stay behind after seven o'clock in case you faint. You can't do this. But like it was rules and regulations that I could not do. And I just felt like it was restrictive. And I felt like I was being penalized because I had a, a health condition. And it just felt really shit. And I remember at a point just being really fucking down, man. I used to come into work and I didn't talk to anyone. I just put my head down, do my work. And I couldn't stay late, so I'll just go home. Despite the lame response from HR, Roses found her inner strength to make the best out of a shit situation. And I did that for a couple of weeks and then something in me was like, this is not you, man. Like, pick yourself up, put your chin up, come in and be your fucking self. And I did. And I just made the best out of that, that experience. However, being late to work was something that was not in Rose's control. As Rose's mentioned before, her disability does not have a convenient schedule. 
And alas, a lack of empathy from management, Roses got called into a disciplinary meeting for her lateness. Her manager had failed her. HR was failing her. Okay, there was another option, the group manager. Before that disciplinary meeting, I spoke to his manager because I was just like, I don't know what to do. Like, this man is getting too much. Like, he's actually making it hard to be at work. So I spoke to his manager, um, who was our manager in that team. He And he basically said to me, well, it's easier to get rid of you than him, so he ain't going anywhere. So knowing she'd tried and been rejected at every avenue for support, like a lamb to slaughter, Roses walked into the meeting. I remember it like it was such a sunny, sunny day. <laughs> I had a disciplinary meeting and I was able to invite one person in and I invited a woman in, I invited Dee in because she was my escape. She was a black lady and she was upstairs and that's the place that I could escape to when it got too much. And so when I went to this disciplinary meeting and I brought Dee with me, it was exactly the same as the Friday meetings. They spoke exactly the same manner, blah, 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 blah. And I remember sitting there and they were just talking to me and whatever and they were just kind of like, yeah, we're going to end your internship early because... I think you're constantly late and he's not giving good reviews about you, blah, 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 blah. So I was like, cool. And Dee turned to me, Roses, is this how they've been speaking to you the whole time you've been here having these meetings? I was like, yeah. She's like, that's not acceptable. That's not how you talk to people. Like, and I didn't understand. I was like, what? Like, isn't it normal? Like, you know, I knew something was off, but I went with it because what else am I going to do? It was crystal clear for Dee that this was shockingly rude and unprofessional behaviour. Just the manner in which they were talking to me, they were obviously triggering her because it was very condescending and he was like, he was just mean, but he said it in such a nice way. And for like HR to not pick him up and say, you can't say that, they were just letting him say what the fuck he wanted. And she was having none of it. She actually wrote a letter to the CEO, yes, D. She wrote a letter, she sent it to HR, she sent it to management, so I'm sure she tried to find CEO, sent it to him too. And just to say this is, like, you know, this girl's been coming up and having all these issues and I sat in and saw firsthand what the hell was going on and it's like unacceptable. People shouldn't have to go through this. Roses had found an ally at work and it felt good. Man, that shit felt good because it validated everything that I was feeling. I was like, you know, it's not normal for anyone to be treating you in that kind of way at work, like being like a nasty way to you one-on-one and then just putting you down in front of people. And it was weird as well that she would do that because she went, like, you know, that could have affected her job as well. Like, as far as I was concerned, she could have got in, like, trouble because you never know how you're going to be received when you complain about things. But um, I felt like I'm always grateful to Dee, like, for that, because she stood up for me knowing that being a junior, I did not have that power. You're probably thinking, so what was the outcome? They terminated my contract and I had to leave that day, that right after that. Yeah, I went to my desk and I was kind of, like, teary-eyed. <laughs> and people were shocked because everyone around me saw the hard work that I was doing. Going from that girl who was dancing in her dressing gown, celebrating her new job, to being sacked for layered and nuanced discrimination is a tragic thought. I didn't think it would be easy, but I did not anticipate all the things that I've had to go through in the media industry. Like, I think in my head, I thought if you worked hard enough, that would be enough. 
I didn't account for the racism. I didn't account for the gaslighting. I didn't account for the weird treat, like some weird, just rude and disrespectful treatment, to be honest with you. If I call it what it is, it's just fucking rude. Roses has openly shared her experiences of having an invisible disability and the challenges it creates. I now wanted to know more about what it's like to be a black woman in media. Rhetorical question. Without a shadow of a doubt, we humans are mesmerised by melanin, the pigment that gives colour to our skin, but almost always for quite the wrong reasons. It was always like the weird side eyes or the weird looks or the behaviour that they have towards you or their tone towards you, the treatment that they gave you. And you just get sick and tired of it, to be honest with you, because I've been in this industry like coming up to like 10 years now and it's everywhere. You don't get a break. Like <laughs> You start a new company, you're like, oh, they like me. And then it's like, oh, do they? Like, what's this? Like, what's this treatment? Where's this coming from? You're just made to feel like you cannot be yourself. And this is not a professionalism thing. It's not like, oh, I'm going to put my professional hat on. No, I'm, I'm made to feel that I make you uncomfortable. Therefore, my job is to be the most comforting black person so that you don't feel so uncomfortable that me laughing too hard or me expressing myself or using, you know, words that you don't know puts you out of it and be like, oh God, what did she say? It's sad but true. Part of being black in a white society is about making others feel comfortable around you. You know, that's what I'm saying. Like, I just have to make sure that I'm not making them feel uncomfortable, whether that's me just being a bit more, you know, joyful and whatnot. It's just like you have to keep a a subtle tone. You don't want to draw these attentions to yourself where people can misinterpret it. But white people don't have to think about that. They can just be themselves and do whatever. And, you know, mate, it's draining so draining it's a men- you're mentally constantly thinking about it and then you have to carry yourself in a certain way anyways and that's a physical thing okay let's take a typical scenario of being booked for a job which for most people seems like a pretty straightforward experience but if you're black a simple booking turns into the spanish inquisition so because i'm a freelancer i'm part of agencies as well as I apply independently to find jobs. And the agencies will call me up and be like, oh, they really like your CV, but they want to meet up for a chat, a quick chat. So like, I'm already working and I'll have to like figure out, take time off or whatever to come to this company for this quick chat that ends up being a whole meeting, like a whole interview. I'm sitting there thinking like, in the beginning I was like, God damn, like what the hell is this? Like, I literally have 15 minutes and you are out here interviewing me. And I was like, does this happen to everyone? And I was pretty damn sure it didn't because I've worked as a booking um, manager and when I book people that have English last names I don't call them in for a quick chat they just get booked and get hired and whatnot and get on with their lives so I'm like why does this keep happening so when I caught on to these quick chats I was like okay I came prepared I had my, my interview book that I had my CV printed out so I could like go through this we're go, we're, you're not doing this to me we're going through this together here's my CV do you need a copy let's do this surely that is not right what do you think you're going to get when you get Rose's Okipo? What does that Okipo mean for you? Does it mean that someone that's not able to communicate? Does it mean someone that's a bit ghetto? Like, what is that image that you have that I will be? Because every single job that I've went for a quick chat, guess what? I've got the fucking role. Like, they've seen that I'm able to do a job. They've seen that I'm able to communicate. They've seen that I'm professional. 
yeah and they will be like oh yeah no she's great yeah when can she start like when do you need me like i'm ready but yeah it's very annoying and that's like the beginning you know you get there and that's at the beginning so you're already kind of like okay if that's happened what else is under the carpet that they're ready to like pull out in december 2019 roses got an offer of a contract from not one but two companies amazing It's a nice position to be in when you can choose your next role. She was at a crossroads, but took a leap of faith and took the job of junior creative director. This was the direction of travel she wanted her career to go in. Blow number one. You can't have that job, we promised you. And then they were like, oh, you know, that job is no longer available. We've done some reshuffling in the company and we don't need that, but we do need assistant producer, a.k.a. a production assistant. And I was like, well, okay." Although feeling a tad deflated, Rose has decided to see the glass as half full. So, you know, my mindset going into that job was kind of like, I was kind of like dejected, a bit down about this whole thing. But I did, you know, it doesn't mean that... I didn't work to my fullest, you know, I was learning new shit and the company, they have like this long-winded way of working, so it was like a lot to learn. I was picking it up, I was doing the job, had lots of questions, which is great. Despite not doing the role she was hired for, Rosa started working as an assistant to a producer. She gave me this task, but then the task changed. So when she gave me the initial task, I was like, mm, OK, I could do this, but... I'm assisting all the other producers as well. So I don't think I could do it in this time frame. Is it okay if we do it together or maybe you can do half of it? It was a task that could be split up because she wanted me to write this email that was going to be sent out to all the shareholders. But unfortunately, I wasn't in all the meetings that she was in. So I was like, "Mm, I don't think I can write this email because I don't have all the information that you need to go in this email. So it's okay that you do the email and I'll do the second part of um, it, which was doing like, presentation work and she was like no 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 you could do it it's fine it's not going to take that long and then the task changed to what it originally was to something completely different and I was just like oh man like you know I I literally think I asked this girl three four times like can we figure out how I can do this because it's not going to work in this time frame and she was just kind of like it's not going to take that long I'm in my 30s I'm very competent I work as a producer I have several different hats on because I'm a freelancer and I need to be able to work continuously so it's not that I can't get something it's just that I want to be able to do it the way you do it in this company and I want to be able to do it right Roses had reached out for help that's positive but it was falling on deaf ears. You've asked for help and you're not getting it. So you do the best you can do. I sent her the work and then she's like, OK, I'm going to come and speak to you about it. The office, you know, it was one of those open plan offices, very echoey. Um, hardly anyone was in it because it was coming up six o'clock. A few people were in meetings and most of them had gone home. This isn't what I wanted. Um, she starts talking to me in a disrespectful manner. She's like, but Roses, you were in the meeting, weren't you? Like, I don't understand why you don't understand how to do this. And she just starts doing that. And she said to me like three, four times, she's like, but you were in the meeting, weren't you? Like in this condescending tone. Yep, blow number two, the disrespectful chat. I was like, is this bitch really talking to me like this? I was shocked, you know, because I'm always shocked when people are so overtly rude. What was going through Rose's mind? When you disrespect me... I literally zone out because I don't want my emotions to speak for me. 
So I was like sitting there thinking, damn, like this girl's really talking to me like this. And there is absolutely no one around to witness once again, <laughs> it's between me and this another person. So I was like, okay, I'm happy to stay behind and do it the way you want. It wasn't that I did it wrong. She wanted it in a particular way. And if you're someone that wants something in a particular way, guess what? Do it yourself. Like, literally, it's either you have to show the person exactly how you want to do it, which wasn't done, or you do it yourself because it's always going to be wrong. Roses digests and reflects on what the fuck just happened. After work, I was I was still trying to process like, the fact that this girl has spoken to me like this because beforehand, like, I could tell there was something off. It was always like she was weary about speaking to me. Like, that's how I felt. Every time she spoke to me, it wasn't like a confident way in which I saw her speak to other people. Um, so I was like, for her to be so rude, and I was like, God damn. And I was like, Do you know what? I'm going to write a fucking email to her because we are both adults. It's a good approach. Put it in writing and keep it professional. I drafted up this email and I sent it to a few of my friends and a couple of them being white because I wanted I wanted my white friends to tell me in it like girl no you can't say that shit even though I know that this email had nothing in it that said anything bad the email basically went I'm here to help like I really want to be able to help you and be as efficient as I can you know I'm new to this industry this part of media I've never really done that before so I'm learning a lot which has been great even when writing an email Roses has to underplay the upset. Why? Because she's a black woman. In this email, the only bit that I spoke about the incident is when I said, how you spoke to me yesterday, it was very unconstructive and I found it very disrespectful, but I really just want to be here to help you. So, you know, is there any way that we can, like, if you want to talk to me about it, I'm happy to talk about it, but I'm just here to help. I knew that sending this email was risky. I knew, even though it said nothing in it that was offensive, I knew that the fact that I had this audacity to send this email would be taken in a negative way. I knew there was two options for this girl to react. So this producer, she could either come and speak to me about what was in the email or speak to me in general because I sent you an email or she would could go to management. So the bottom line is, in her gut, she knew that this email would be taken the wrong way. And we all know the outcome, right? It just felt shit because I was like, like really? What in this email did you feel so offensive that you had to tell management? Because you know this isn't going to go well. When management calls you into a meeting, it's either you're getting a promotion or you're getting sacked. So I knew I weren't getting a promotion. So I was like, mm, OK, I'm probably going to get sacked. And I was prepared for that. Blow number three. Are you actually going to ask me about my side of the story? So it's like evening. It was like early this year and it's all dark outside. So we're sitting down in this kind of low light meeting room and they're sitting across the table from me and I'm sitting there waiting. So it's me and the head of HR and one of the managers of my department. So I'm sitting by myself on one side of the table and they're both sitting facing me. So we sit down and the first thing that comes out of the manager's mouth is, um, I think... I think you might know why we um, called you into this meeting. We're really concerned about an email that you sent. And she just goes in on me. She was basically telling me that I was wrong for sending an email. She didn't ever once mention anything about the email, any words that I put in this email, but she was telling me that 
you sent this email and it's not okay. And she was telling me what was said to her by this producer, you know, you didn't do this task that we thought was really simple. And, um, you know, they failed to see the fact that the email was sent in the beginning because I had been offended. There was no kind of like, you know, we feel, we know you feel this way. But sending an email at this workplace is not the way that we encourage people to handle it. You should have came to hate. No, you were in the wrong. You sent this email. Why? She's concluded that I was in the wrong. Despite actually looking at this email and reading it and being like, OK, wait, you sent this email. Why did they make this a foregone conclusion? Because I'm a black woman, it's easy for me. She was a palatable white girl. And it's easy for you to see me being the aggressor. Blow number four. Let's shovel up all the irrelevant shit so that we can make it look like 24 karat gold. All of a sudden, all these other issues start to arise. And she's telling me shit like, you know, we've had reports that your um, attention to detail has been slack. And I'm like, you know, I'm feeling attacked now because I'm like, you've brought me in for an email, but now you've got like 100 things to say. Why didn't you bring this up before? Why are you letting me just work if I'm doing stuff wrong? And I said this from the beginning. And I said that it, when they gave me the job. If I do something wrong, tell me, because I'm the kind of person that wants to do a good job. When she stops talking to take a breath, I was like, do I get to say it from my point of view or what's happened? And it's almost like she had this look on her face like, oh, yeah, shit. <laughs> like, I'm meant to hear both sides of the story. It's not meant to be just, you know, me telling you that you've done something wrong because I've heard something from this one producer. Blow number five, the final blow. And it's a belter. Mind your body language. The manager goes, oh, and there's just one thing that I just want to bring up. Um, it's about your uh, body language. This is what I cried about this morning, because what you have to understand is as a black person, I check my body language consistently. I make sure that when I'm in a shop and the security guard is checking, I'm, I'm making sure that I'm act. You can see me putting that back on the shelf. My hand doesn't go in my pockets. It doesn't go in my bag unless it has to. Like, so for her to say your body language, that shit, oh man, I cried. I was like, you don't even know what you're saying, but you're saying this. And she's like, oh, you have to be careful because your body language. The manager pulls out a story from the past and uses it conveniently against Rose's. She was referring to a meeting where we had clients in it. And this was probably like a two hour meeting. The meeting room was a meeting room that had the projector, let's say the projector's on the left side, it's like a rectangle meeting room. The projector's on one end of the rectangle. If you're sitting behind anyone who is sitting close to the projector, you can't see stuff. So if you're that person sitting in the front, you have to either lean back or lean forward for people to see. So the clients were sitting behind me, so I had to lean back most of the time, but then my back was hurting. So I was leaning and I was, I, I actively remember thinking, I'm going to sit like this so that it, you know, I'm in my head in that meeting, I was even thinking then, I'm going to sit like this. It wasn't comfortable because the table was too far forward. So I was like trying to lean on the table, but I couldn't, so I was kind of leaning on my on my knees which was crossed so I was had like a bit of a hunch back and this is what the woman was talking about my body my language made me look disinterested and she's like you know we've got clients and we have a reputation and I was like you what the funny thing about this and this is what pisses me off everyone that sits in these four spaces sits like this and after she said that to me every meeting I went to I was seeing it everywhere nobody was getting picked up 
the same producer who had complained about my body language, she was sitting in the exact same position. The difference was she had her laptop, so she was resting her elbows on her laptop, so her shot, her back wasn't as hunched. And I was like, wow. Like, for you to tell someone like me, a black woman, that I have to be cautious of my body language, that's wild to me, man. That's like, you don't even understand what that comment of everything she said, that fucking crushed me. Since I can remember, I've always had to check my body language. I've always had to check my facial expression. Oh my God, do I look like I'm frowning? Even if I'm sitting there just reading something, I'm aware that I could look angry because of my facial expressions. I don't want someone being, oh, Rosa looks really mad today. Because I've had experiences of people projecting things on me which wasn't true. For her entire freaking life, Roses has been subconsciously code switching, changing how she acts, how she speaks, to avoid being labelled as aggressive, ghetto or angry. The fact that you're black, people are still going to have these stereotype views of you and they're still going to treat you according to these stereotypes. And that's why for the longest time since I can remember, I've always had to check myself. So for a white woman to tell me that I had to check my body language, like, fuck you, man, that shit fucking hurt. It really did. It really did. She just said it because she was told. So it means not only you can see that that was not an appropriate thing to say to me because of the situation and how the setup was. But then the producers in there, so you're telling me, like, I'm thinking about it backwards. So the producer's sitting in this meeting thinking, look at her sitting with her back hunched. Like, so you're judging me when I'm just here trying to work. Do you mean? So fuck you. Fuck you for making me feel like that and making all of those things that I've had to experience my whole life come up in that, like... They don't realise how much you have to work as a black person to not be intimidating for them. Like, you literally... I'm not a fucking hood chick, and even if I fucking was, as long as I was professional, there's no reason for you to treat me like shit. And just because you do it in a nice way, you're still treating me like shit. There's so much that you have to check when you come in. You have to check your language. You have to check you're not too loud. You have to check you're not too smart. You have to check that you're not making that person, that white person feel uncomfortable. Why can't I just come into work and do a great job? Why is that not enough? Yeah, it just fucking pissed me off, man. I was like, of everything that happened in that meeting, that comment literally pissed me off. I was like, how dare you say that shit to me? That shit really, really did, like, hurt me. And that's why I'm crying again, because I can't actually get over that. The fact that you ha- you think that you can turn around and say something like that to someone like, which part of my body language, the black of it? Like, what is it? The Black Lives Matter movement started in 2013 and returned when George Floyd was suddenly murdered this year. What does Roses think about the reaction to this global movement against racism and for equality? Until George Floyd died, race was not a subject that you could openly speak about. People were now open, like, oh, yeah, let's talk about race. It was never that way. But because we were all forced to be in our homes, we had nothing to distract us. Therefore, our focus was on George Floyd and we were all able to sit there and watch a six-minute video of a man dying. But we've been telling you this for a whole... This has been going on. So it's like the frustration of people waking up to that. They're only just seeing it. But then I'm like, on the flip side, okay, great, we'll take it, like, we'll take that. You've seen it now, okay, what's going to happen? It was the reaction from media companies which was particularly infuriating. 
it's frustrating because what pissed me off to no end was seeing all these media companies that I've worked in putting up these uh, marketing PR statements about we're with you, we stand with you. And I'm like, really? Because <laughs> when I was working there, you were with me, number one. And number two, there wasn't a lot of me's to be with. So uh, where is the statement coming from? Which part of you are there? It's one thing saying you're with someone, but when you're in a company that has no procedure and nobody has this now, you know, maybe this will be a thing. Like there's no way of protecting yourself when you are hearing these racist things or you are experiencing these like microaggressions. Who am I going to tell? When I've told HR, it's never been good. It's like a black mark on, against your name. So they're watching you. So you like tell them about something that you've experienced that's been like shocking or upsetting. And then it's turned around on you and it's like, oh, well, look, look, she's like, oh, oh well, look, look, she's on this. And then they, they stack that up against you. So when you, you're sitting in a meeting with them, that's what they're going to use on you. In the past, a white person can choose simply to ignore the news. They can occupy themselves with the details of their own life and remain blissfully unaware of what is happening in faraway places like Louisiana, Minnesota or Texas. White privilege is what allows people to make this choice. That's the difference this time round. It's been a transformational moment where the onus has now been put on non-black people. What is it we need? The people that we can stand by, who understand and who, you know, can see it too. Because, like I said, like, the racism is not overt. Like, it's very, very subtle. And when you catch that shit, you're like, damn, did that shit just happen? Because nobody reacts to it. Nobody says anything. And that's one thing that I appreciate about the recent Black Lives Matter movement. It's put, like, white privilege on the forefront of everything. Like, it's not saying to black people anymore that, oh, you guys need to figure out how the fuck you're going to get around these racism. It's saying to white people, actually, you need to check your white privilege. You need to check how you're approaching this. You need to check that you're not perpetuating being quiet. Like, it's not enough being quiet. You have to be actively not racist. If people want to proclaim Black Lives Matter but aren't taking the experience of black lives around them seriously, then they really need to question if they support black lives. After all of this shit is said and done, how can we move forwards? The Black Lives Matter movement, you know, people put up the squares, but human beings, we're all very fickle. And unfortunately, in this day and age, everything is so fast paced that is it really like, are you still thinking about these things? Like, is this something still that you're going to stand up against? Because it's not just, we know this, it's not just putting up a square. It's actively being awake at that moment where you see something and you're like, this is not OK, I'm going to speak up. That's what we need. Someone said something to me, they're like, you know, they hate the word diversity because it means having a sprinkle of um, ethnic minorities or, you know, people with disabilities. They like the word representative because then it means that it reflects the society and I was like oh my god yeah that's tr that's really true like we don't want diversity we want a representation we want companies to look like the people they are out here trying to engage the people that they are showing their films to the people who are consuming their products and consuming their entertainment that's what we want is there an optimistic outlook there is hope but things need to change in learning to respect other races. A good start might be to stop assuming everyone who looks the same 
thinks the same. I'm hoping to God that there is change. I'm going to be positive and I'm optimist and say yes. In the media industry, it can happen. They just need to get off their asses, stop writing fucking formulas and, oh, let's do this scheme. Can we just hire people? Look at their CV. Oh, shit, they've got good stuff going on here. They've got a lot of experience. Let's put them here. In the same way, there's good and bad white people. There's good and bad black people in, in the workplace. So just because one black person has done something wrong or behaved the way, it doesn't taint us all, like, give us opportunities. Like, And that's one thing I keep hearing. It's like, oh, we had this person that did this. I've seen shit that white people do and they're still working in the industry. And I sit there and seeing this stuff and I'm like, damn, like, what would happen if that person was black? Because there's no repercussion. I've seen a girl flip a chair over, walk out and stomp and close the door, slam the door shut. And me and my friend, we both saw it and we were just like looking at each other and we're like, because given that look like that bitch, that would never happen if you were black. You could never express yourself like that because you know what? You'll get your P45 out that door with you. Like as a black person in the media industry, and I'm not sure a lot of other industries can people feel this way. You're just made to feel like you cannot be yourself. Has the 2020 lockdown brought about any significant change for people working in media? Well, you know, this is one thing that the lockdown has really brought into light, that actually you can work from home. And a lot of the times companies were not allowing this. Like I remember in law, companies have to like make reasonable adjustments so that you can do your job as a dis- person with a disability. And they will be like, oh, so what can we do to help you? And I'm like, well, if I could have like a half day on a Wednesday so I can break it up or I can work from home. Oh, no, no, that's not possible. That's not a thing that we can do here. So now that we've been in lockdown and all these companies have been working from home, I'm like, oh, really? I'm sure a lot of dis- people with disabilities are like, mm-hmm, we see you now. What are you going to say now? What's your excuse for not hiring people with a disability? Because we can work effectively from home because we're not making those long journeys to work. Fuck my life. That was an intense interview. But Roses, having been in the hot seat, how do you feel? I always say it's a Pandora box. You just shove everything in it. But unfortunately, it's not bottomless, you know. It comes out and this is it. I have not literally processed half the shit I've spoken about. I've literally just had to go day by day because I'm moving around different companies. I'm experiencing different things, microaggressions, this, that, whatever. And I'm just like, if this is what happens when I have to actually look at it and see it for what it really is, I do cry because I can't change my skin colour. I can't change my disability. I wouldn't want to change my skin colour, but I would definitely want to not be fatigued as much as I am and in pain half the time or stuck in bed ever so often I would like to change that but I can't and I just I'm managing it so for someone or people or industries and companies to penalize me for something I have no control over that's what hurts me and that's what makes me cry let's have a happy ending note for our listeners hopefully people listening to this and going through similar or other issues they're going through they know it can be done like I've done such amazing things I've worked with such amazing people and I've had these amazing opportunities your disability will affect you but don't think it's the end don't think that you know I'm never going to do anything or I'm never going to amount to anything because even one great thing is is good do you know what I mean like and then you know you can do that one great thing how many more other great things can you do Thank you for listening to Naked Stories. I hope that each flower featured has opened your eyes and given you a deeper understanding of the serious situations we are still facing in the media industry and the world. Although this is the end of the series, 
the journey to change is only just truly beginning. The fundamentals of change is to focus all of your energy not on fighting the old, but on building the new. Don't let yesterday use up too much of today. Today, we must no longer tolerate discrimination of any kind. It's not going to be easy, comfortable, or a quick transition, but every flower must grow through dirt. They survive the storm and use the rain to grow. So we too have to rise up from the systemic discrimination and injustice and encourage a true acceptance of not just diversity or inclusion, but equality as well. This show was edited by Michael Kalizinski. Sound designed by Anton Borove. Produced by Anna Zerjic, Jessica Lapsiwala and Tom Viskoski. Narratives written by Jessica Lapsiwala and myself, Roses Okipo. So, for now, arrivederci, until we meet again. <laughs>